from Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village and the Virginia Policy Review. This is Academical. I'm Charlie Bruce, the lead producer on the show. Each week, we interview experts on pressing issues of policy and leadership in the public arena. Today, we're talking to Dean Ian Solomon of the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, the home of VPR. When my team sat down to think who our guest should be on the inaugural episode, everyone said Dean Solomon. Dean Solomon has done basically everything one can do in the policy arena, from private sector development to working in the Obama administration. He also loves the theater, horseback riding, and yoga. Our conversation leaned more philosophical than our future episodes, but I think that's an appropriate overture to the season ahead. Without further ado, here's our show. How is the Dean's Book Club going? So we, we've uh, met a few times at the it's not a regular book club. It's people who wish to join. And it's a book. I usually pick choose books that I either haven't yet read or haven't read carefully. So the most recent one was Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, which was a, uh, I think, a, a terrific personal narrative about race, about growing up, about coming of age, about being a parent, about understanding the complexity and the trauma of this country. Um, so we had a, a good discussion about it. I like the book clubs because it's an informal way to gather and learn with people where no one's graded. There's no right or wrong answers. It's about collective communal discovery and understanding together. It helps to build community. It helps to have conversations about our values and what matters to us. What made you pick Between the World and Me? A couple of things. I think Tanastikos is just a really beautiful writer. I think his use of language is powerful and um, piercing oftentimes. You know, this, in some ways for many of us, it's the question of our lives and our work. How does this country reconcile itself with its history, its history and, the, and its continuing legacies of systemic racism? Um, so I think this book does so, or, or is adds some great um, thoughts and ideas and, and dialogue and anecdotes for conversation about how we come to terms with, with this country's original sin or birth defect or continuing malady. And do you think that Coates is giving us an answer or do you think it's more Zen Cone-like where the process of writing and reading is attempting to find the answer? I think he's sharing his reflections on the answer. I'm not sure I think there is the answer. I think there are answers and we continue to be in a process of evolution and understanding. I think oftentimes the more I think I understand something, the more I understand is left to be understood. The more I realize I don't yet know. I remain, I try to remain quite humble about how much is left to be understood. Absolutely. And I'm sure that this is something that's come up for you while you've been uh, co-chairing the Racial Equity Task Force at UVA. So the Racial Equity Task Force uh, was initiated to address UVA's history of systemic racial inequities. And uh, that is a pretty big task. Uh, In the process of being on this task force, what has been challenging? Everything. No, we're, we're tackling hard issues, right? Um, so it's challenging to ask hard questions about why things are the way they are and not other ways and how we might uh, uh, address things to make them better. Um, 
and it's challenging because these issues often have a lot of emotional content for people and people can grow really quite fearful or sad or ashamed, uh, more angry or threatened, right? So, so you have a whole range of, of emotions that attach to our individual and group identities. Um, and when you start diving into this work, you start stirring this pot of emotions, the stew of emotions, and they interact with each other. Um, and even people of, of goodwill, good faith, um, good intent can often react when they perceive a threat, can react in, in ways that actually reduce the likelihood of constructive conversation as opposed to promote constructive conversations. You know, there's not, there's not a university in the country, I think, that has really solved or even gone anywhere near close to solving some of these fundamental racial inequities that, that plague education. Absolutely. And I'm sure that in this process, you probably learned about other institutions you've been a part of and how all of this has been um, an endemic part of American culture. And that's really challenging. How have you grounded yourself in this process? Life is challenging. I, I think we all every day have a series of really difficult things we do with our families, with our loved ones, um, in our relationships. So I, I see getting up in the morning, going to work about how do we make this world more fair, more equitable, more just, more hopeful. I, I don't get as excited to do easy things. Um, here, I think we have a fundamental um, challenge to the viability of this democracy. And that's part of why I think this is worth our time, worth our time as a university, worth our time as a school of leadership and public policy, worth my time personally as a human being, son, brother, father, husband, to tackle and see if I can make a positive difference. Do you think that's given you hope? I work to remain hopeful. And even when I don't feel hopeful, I, I think I need to almost pretend to be hopeful. Um, and I say that reflecting on one of my heroes, Nelson Mandela, who would talk about pretending to be brave when he didn't actually feel it, because the act of pretending to be brave actually built your bravery and you don't actually overcome your fear, you work through your fear. Um, and for me, I'm not sure hope and optimism are always natural, but I do actively cultivate hopefulness from among my, within myself and with other people. Yeah, I, I ask that because I think in processes like this that can be discouraging, there needs to be a North Star to hold on to, uh, to, to keep us going through the dark times. Yeah, and there are, there are lots of North Stars to hold on to. Every student here that I meet and get to talk to, it's, it's, it's exhilarating to realize that this person might hold the key to understanding something fundamental about this world. That's amazing, right? That's one of the joys of being in higher ed, being an educator, being here at the Batten School, just the number of people who, yeah, you're going to do something valuable. You're going to make a difference. And I might have the opportunity to be a little step along your journey or be part of that process for you. That's a, that's a gift. That's a privilege. And it makes me very hopeful. That's such an incredible amount of faith that you're putting into uh, a lot of 20-somethings. Uh, but it's an honor to get it from uh, someone who's had as much amazing lived experience as you had. It's not inevitable. So that's the challenge. I, I do have a, a lot of hope in 26 and 25 and 
and, and, and people generally in the human capacity generally in it. But I also know that it's not always easy. And I think we are at a moment where there is a greater perceived urgency to the work than I've experienced in a very long time. So I hope that students recognize their potential to be agents in the direction of this country and in the future of this democracy and act with urgency with that agency. Absolutely. Um, one, one lesson that you talked about last year in the interview you had was gray areas and how when working with different people, you have to embrace the gray areas. I wanted to hear more about what experience you had that made you learn how to embrace those gray areas. Yeah, I think by gray areas, I was referring to the idea that nothing is ever black or white. Everything is a shade of gray. The world is full of nuance. And I remember growing up um, wanting my heroes to be perfect. Right. So, you know, and I've mentioned Nelson Mandela before. Right. He writes with great regret about kind of his his parenting. So I recall when I my, my son, four, three or four years old, I was impatient in a rush and driving him to daycare on my way down to um, the Senate office where I was working for Senator Obama. And when I was running late and I was angry and frustrated, I remember like shouting back at him and just was overcome with a sense of shame. What was I modeling to him? How, how, how bad a father I must be to have yelled at this kid in the car seat in the back seat, like, what was I doing? And, you know, I could write myself off as a bad parent or I could just recognize my fundamental humanity that, you know, that we're, none of us are perfect. We do the best we can and we can constantly uh, work to improve ourselves. And we are a complex species and public policy is the same way, right? There are policies that achieve some of their objectives and then have unintended consequences um, or that achieve part of what we want, but have trade-offs. And we have to weigh those trade-offs and do the best we can as an imperfect species to try to make life better for others. So why do you think that public service is such an important and critical part of that mission? I'm a bit of a missionary here that I think we have a, an obligation and an opportunity to cultivate something really special. Um, you know, in my personal life, we've, you, know, you may have heard me talk about uh, um, the concept of, of Ubuntu, um, which I learned when I was in South Africa. And it's a, a South African word, basically means I am because you are, right? It's about the fundamental interdependence of our humanity. That is at the heart of service. Um, I think that's the foundation of, of healthy civilizations and societies. Yeah, the, the concept of uh, Ubuntu is one that I can feel through the, the philosophy of our, of our class coursework. How do you want students uh, to be embracing that concept as we're learning, as we're going out into the world and becoming public servants? How is that something that you embraced uh, in your leadership roles? I, I hope from a student perspective, that we cultivate through their classes, through the community we have here, a refined sense of empathy and a hunger and a curiosity to understand other people, right? So when you go out into the community or you're working on one of your, you know, your, your policy projects or whatever it might be, you are inst instinctively asking, how are others doing, right? What is that person experiencing? But if we can, train ourselves and 
practice and build our muscle memory to be curious about others, I think that will make us all more effective as leaders and as policymakers. It's interesting how what you just said about empathizing and imagining other people's lived experience links directly with our research methods and data analysis class. Uh, Professor Hudson uh, led us through this study, this Progressa study in Mexico, where they were paying children to go to school and trying to see what the educational outcomes were. And we were looking at the, uh, the, the baseline covariates of the people in the study, which were, did they have running water in their house? Did their house have a dirt floor? Did they have a bathroom? And she made us stop and look at the numbers and say, we can see 20% of houses didn't have a dirt floor or 30% of houses had running water. Can you imagine the conditions that people are living in and how that might affect how often they go to school or what their educational outcomes are? And I thought that was a really humanizing way of looking at numbers when we live in a world that can sometimes reduce the nuances and complexities of the lived experiences to a data point, it's really great to be able to look critically at those baseline covariates and think, how are these people living? And how is that impacting the world? And how is our policy impacting them? Yeah, there's really powerful um, examples of this process of perspective taking, taking another person's perspective and how that can reduce action on the basis of biases, right? So there's good data that show that people are often quite naturally biased against people of other races. But when you have those same people actually practice perspective taking with photographs of people of other races and imagining their experiences, their backgrounds, um, trying to understand you know, what they may have had for breakfast and how they got there and fundamentally humanizing that photograph that that seems to then reduce the uh, power of the bias. Since to, you know, and I think the more we can humanize each other through our interactions, through our empathetic imagination, through our sense of goodwill towards others, I think that should make us better at every interaction we have during the day, more effective, um, better in terms of exercising leadership in whatever role we may take in an in, in organization or community, better as friends and parents, children, um, citizens, members of a community. I'm really curious to hear about, in your Battenauer speech, you talked about your brother and how his his death was the consequence of a public policy failure. And if you'd like to talk about it, I'd, I'd really love to hear more about what you learned in that process about how to, to navigate public policy um, failures. No, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, my brother, Sheldon Solomon, passed away in 2011, was my, my big brother. And a person who had many, many challenges. And as you said, um, was the victim and or just was on the wrong side or had been disadvantaged by many aspects of public policy, right? So he was an adopted Sioux uh, from the Lower Brule tribe of South Dakota. Him and his people and his you know, parents and siblings born on a reservation in South Dakota, that's not their natural land. They were pushed there, right? So our indigenous people's policy, our policy toward Native Americans failed the Native 
population here so overwhelmingly. I mean, it, it's a tragic genocide um, in so many dimensions. There was a program to try to send native kids off the reservation to adoptive families on the East Coast. And, and that's how my parents ended up adopting my older brother. He was actually taken from her at birth. She, had, you know, she was an alcoholic and several of her children were removed from her arms um, and, and sent out to homes. And I think that totally disconnected um, from his community. You know, he then had you know, a series of learning disabilities and schools didn't handle them very well. You know, those issues, of course, led to greater challenges with employment and economic sustainability in this country because we, we, we prioritize certain types of skills and abilities over others. That then drove him to seek healthcare at, on, back in South Dakota on the reservation where he was born because through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, he could get medical care. No jobs there, no real supports and services there. His addictions um, were exacerbated, ending up in the criminal legal system. And it was in custody where he ultimately died of a traumatic brain injury. So a, a, a life that I think illustrates many policy failures and what's the take what's the key lesson i think it's, it's that you know we, we we forget people's humanity we're too quick to put them in a bucket or put a label on them and i i did the same thing oh he's an alcoholic well no maybe we should think about it as he is a human being suffering from alcoholism or this kid here is a child who never attached well to their parents and has certain aggressive behaviors. Let's think beyond the categories of right and wrong, good or bad, worthy of being arrested or not, and say, what's the whole person and what might be challenge they are dealing with and can we help them deal with that challenge? Did that experience change your life or the path you were on or, or make you see things differently? So it certainly was part of my evolution. There may, again, there may be these moments that of, of aha, moments of realization, but I think they, they, they weave together. Each moment is another just kind of, you know, piece of a thread in this broader tapestry of our understanding. And I, I think it has helped me to orient my, the priority of healing. Really, it's about how do we just restore what's been broken? I had a conversation with my sister the day was really angry about something that had happened um, to one of her kids. And I said, I, I hear your anger. What do you really want to happen? Do you want revenge for that anger? Or do you actually want to try to get something healed? Not always easy to, to be, have the courage to, to heal without what might, some might consider justice, others might consider vengeance. Yeah. So, and sometimes we just want to be seen in our anger and recognized for the pain we're going through. And that's not always uh, granted to us. And, and that can cause and create more pain down the line. The last question uh, that I wanted to uh, leave us with is what's a lesson that you would give to your younger self? What's something that you've learned in your policy experience that you wish you knew when you were in your early 20s? I spent a lot of time in my 20s agonizing over what I was supposed to be. And what path was I supposed to be on? What was I supposed to be? As I've aged and as I've tried a variety of different things, I was, I was asking the wrong question. It's not so much what did I want to be, it's how did I want to live each day? Who were the people I wanted to surround myself with? What was the contributions I wanted to make? Um, how did I want to feel at the end of each, each day? 
Um, and I think recognizing that it's not your title, it's how you conduct yourself, it's the relationships you build and invest in that really is, is what makes the real difference, at least in my life, has brought me a, a real measure of greater peace and joy than perhaps I experienced in my 20s. Wow. Uh, that's something I needed to hear right now. I'm not sure if anyone else uh, needs to hear this, but uh, our listeners will be happy to hear it. Thank you so much, uh, Dean Solomon, for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. Charlie, it's been great to be with you. That's our show for this week. In our next episode, hosts Connor Eads and Carrie Christensen will sit down with Commissioner Chris Piper of the Virginia Department of Elections to discuss election integrity and security. Listeners, please like, subscribe, and share on socials. If you have any questions, comments, guest recommendations, slide into our inbox, virginiapolicyreview at gmail.com. I'm Charlie Bruce. See you next time.